0: Today on Pilgrim Radio's here's people, Patrick Miller, on why we need to take video games seriously.
1: So I think you need to know yourself. You need to ask, what does God want for my heart or my soul? Um, And then when you play the games itself, we need to play the games discerningly. You know, uh, when we step into the game, we can ask, is this game pointing me towards Christ? Is it calibrating my imagination and my ethics towards the kingdom? And if it's not, then what can I learn about the world? And how do I need to resist it? And and again, that's the interesting thing about playing video games is sometimes it's going to help you understand your neighbor and help you understand your context in a deeper way so that you can interact with others evangelistically uh, for the glory of the
0: kingdom. Patrick Miller, next. As part of the millennial generation, those born between 1981 and 1996, Patrick Miller says the older generations have helped Christians consider the cost of playing video games, but they rarely consider the cost of neglecting them. Patrick Miller is on the pastoral staff of the Crossing Church in Columbia, Missouri, and writer of the thoughtful piece, The Case for Taking Video Games Seriously. Pastor Miller, why is a pastor writing an article about video games?
1: Uh, Maybe the answer comes just by looking at your children or maybe your children's children. Because my guess is that you have someone in your life who you love dearly who spends some amount of time playing video games and even if you don't video games have grown into one of the largest entertainment industries in the world uh the film and uh dis- the film production distribution uh, for you know hollywood all of that it, it got about 76.7 billion dollars in revenue in the last year whereas video games over doubled that 180.3 billion dollars that was spent inside of the video game industry or that was made in the video game industry in revenue and how much money people spend on something doesn't tell you that it must therefore be valuable but i think it at least begs a question is there something worth considering here
0: well no no you believe our views and we'll we'll kind of talk about this as we go but our views of video games are rooted more in generational attitudes and you use a quote uh, a 10-year-old quote but by mark driscoll it's more a factor of how old we are rather than really theology is that right
1: yeah, I, I think there's a story to be told here. Mark Driscoll, he was a Gen X pastor. I'm not Gen X, I'm millennial. Uh, are you Are you Gen X or, or Boomer? Where, where do you fall in the, oh, the boomer. scale? If you're a Boomer, the reality is you probably didn't grow up playing video games unless you are in a very, very small number of households that had access to this kind of stuff. Um, but Gen X was a slightly different generation. So 2011, Mark Driscoll, he is kind of the quintessential Gen X pastor at the time. Of course, now he's discredited and he's in a different place, but at the time he was really well-respected. And he had this three-minute-long tirade against gamers and concluded with him saying, video games aren't sinful, they're just stupid. Now, here's the deal. I doubt many people would put it that bluntly, yeah. but my guess is that there are a lot of people in his Gen X a cohort who would agree with them, and this really matters because as you know, boomers are are aging out and passing the reins of their uh, ministries and church organizations to Gen Xers. Um, the Gen Xers are going to be the ones who are shaping how those churches and ministries think about their engagement with an incredibly important form of entertainment. And unfortunately, by, by no fault uh, of the average Gen X person, um, their experience with video games might shade in a slightly unhelpful way at times. Slightly helpful ways, right? Because there's going to be some good critiques in here it might shade their perception of how we think about video games as Christians.
0: Well, help us understand what you mean by a a video game. I mean, it's much different today than in 1985, obviously.
1: Yes. Yeah, things have changed tremendously. And when you think about Gen X in particular, there's three things that I think we should attend to. The first is that if you ask the average Gen X or what they thought about video games, they would probably start by saying they're childish. Now, that makes perfect sense to me because when they were, you know, in elementary school or slightly older, you know, the kinds of video games that were out back then was (laughs) Pac-Man. It's not the most uh, adult form of entertainment out there. And then in the mid-1980s, there were home consoles that were beginning to become rather popular in America. Of course, there were the Atari before that, but very few people had them. And these were Japanese-made consoles. But at the time, they thought their way of breaking into the American market was through the toy market, which meant that they needed to advertise their uh, video games to children. Well, Gen X at this point, they're getting into middle school and high school. and, And a generation that's watching Beavis and Butthead is not going to be very interested in a cutesy little Mario game. And so it created a certain sense of video games are for children. They're not for me. And that perception has stuck since then um i think another thing that we can pick what we want to get into yeah. is just the perception of violence around video games and also addiction in video games
0: well we'll talk about that a little bit i think when you talk about uh gen uh gen x the people what born between 65 and 80 are the people that are in their 40s and 50s i guess yes now isn't that a major critique of a lot of the video games is that they are violent
1: Yeah, it is a huge critique and and you hit that age range just right, you know, by 1999, most Gen Xers had reached adulthood, they were starting their families and mass media coverage of the Columbine shooting awoke a lot of young parents to the possibility or the threat of school violence, Um, but what followed after Columbine isn't quite what we're used to today. Of course, there were the Jeremiah ads against guns. Uh, but what's interesting is the gun lobby actually worked alongside Democrats like Joe Lieberman to deflect a lot of the blame from guns and instead pointed at video games. And so Lieberman, he came before Congress after Columbine, and he had all of these accusations about how video games had made the two killers violent. He claimed that they dressed like characters in a video game, which turned out to be a false claim. He put, he claimed that they played a quote unquote murder simulator which again turned out to be a false claim. And he claimed that video games actually, again, made people violent. Now there's been a lot of studies since then. And uh, for the most part, we've discovered that there really is no correlation between human violence and whether or not you play violent video games. I mean, that's not a defense of violent video games, by the way. It's just to say it doesn't actually make you violent. Um, but this narrative has stuck for a long time. I mean, the, the kind of chief proponent of a, a, an attorney named Jack Thompson, he was actually disbarred because he said so many falsehoods about how video games make people violent. But again, if you're Gen X, you've got young kids, and this thing happens in Columbine, just like your experience with childish games shaped your view, your experience with uh, Columbine is going to shape your idea of whether or not video games are violent.
0: Well, help us to understand, Pastor Miller, uh, how prevalent, how ubiquitous, if you will, are video games in your generation? As you said, you're a millennial, people in their 30s and 40s. uh, And is it, it's kind of a two-part question here, how what percentage of your generation are gamers? And then, is it more of a male phenomenon? In other words, male versus female?
1: Mm, yeah. I, I don't have a specific statistics, so I, I will hesitate to give uh, definitive numbers. Okay. Um, but I can speak anecdotally and say that for a lot of millennials, a lot of people in my cohort, um, video games are a major part of their life and they have been since they were kids. The phenomenon is definitely more pronounced amongst men than women, but we know that the cohort of women who are gaming uh, is growing significantly. And the perception around games as being hyper-violent, of course, there are tons of hyper-violent games out there and the Christian should take that seriously. I, I don't think it's probably good for your soul to play a game that teaches you to emulate or uh, glorify or celebrate violence but there is a tremendous amount of games out there that do not have gratuitous violence and that in many cases have no real violence at all And so again these are all things to consider as you're evaluating games in the present
0: well if you would and, and you get into this in your piece people can read this the case for taking video games seriously explain the po- some powerful aspects of the current video games you talk about that of fun, And storytelling and immersion.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I I like to start with fun because back when I was playing video games for the first time, uh, if you asked me, what do you think about video games? I would have had a simple answer. I'd say, well, they're a lot of fun. And there was nothing more fun for me, by the way, than the 1985 game Super Mario Bros., which probably most people uh, listening to this have at least seen, if not. Played at some point. But what makes a video game fun? Well, video game developers call this game feel. It's the interactive feedback loop that exists between the player and the screen. And creating a game that feels good requires. A lot of artistry. You have to have game physics, character movement, enemy behavior patterns, visual effects, screen shaking, shaders, textures, all these things go into making a game feel crisp and good. And it has to work in perfect concert with the tactile experience of inputting, you know, inputs on a on a controller. And so when the guy who created Mario, Miyamoto, when he created Mario, he spent months just making Mario feel good, the experience of controlling him on a screen before he even de- designed a level. And then he created levels that added layers of complexity so that this good experience of playing Mario would be fun. Now, here's why I say all that. There's incredible artistry behind this game, but you know, little eight year old me, he didn't know what to call it. I had one word for it. It was fun. Yeah. I think sometimes Christians, we give fun a bad rap, you know, like what they would say to me is, Hey, what'd you find fun? Well, I found the fun of uh, the fun was in mastering the game. They'd say, "See, you're wasting your time. <laughs> you've you've mastered something useless." But I would push back and I'd say, "If you really think that, then you think that all fun pastimes are worthless because there's no such thing as a fun pastime that doesn't require mastery." This is why I hate playing war with my daughter. That's a card game where you just flip cards over at random and whoever has the highest card wins. Yep. Why isn't it fun? Because you can't master it. You know what's much more fun? Card games like uh, y- y- uh, I mean, there's so many different. You can talk about uh, Monopoly. You can talk about back game. There's tons of fun games, but what makes them fun is that you can actually master them. And the joy of mastery is really a recreation that happens in yourself where you're taking the raw materials of God's creation. You're acting like a sub creator and you're creating new possibilities in the confines of a game. That's what makes something fun. And that's why I think it's rejuvenating. It's part of our Sabbath rest to have fun and to do these things responsibly, right? If video gaming is controlling your life, that's a serious, serious problem. But if you're doing it responsibly and responsible time limits, we can really celebrate the fun that comes from playing games alone or together
0: and what about the concept of immersion I think you compare it a lot to how we might um, approach literature yes yeah you know
1: I I was an English major so uh, perhaps that's where my uh, comparison comes from but again immersion is a phrase from game design and it's the way in which a game quite literally immerses you and what I love about immersion in games is that it's immersion is true in all art right a great novel what happens you get immersed in it you know you're reading the stories of tolkien and you feel as though you're walking through middle earth with the hobbits that's immersion and the same thing happens in film and on tv but the way in which each medium immerses you is different you know when i'm reading a book i don't have a picture i have to imagine it in my mind when i'm seeing a tv screen i might not have access to what's happening in people's heads the way i would in a book so the immersion works differently what makes gaming unique is that the immersion is a it's a reciprocal thing that happens you as the player are interacting with what's happening on the screen and so it immerses you in a very unique way Um, One great example of this, one of my favorite examples, comes from a game, uh, a best-selling game called Final Fantasy VII that was released in, I believe, 1997. And in in the story, it's really about survivor's guilt and the way in which people who survive traumatic events, uh, world events, feel uh, responsible, even though they didn't cause it, for the hurt and the harm that others experience. And one of the main points of the story is that you have to process your guilt and walk out on the other side of shame before you can find healing. And there's a scene in the middle of it where the main character is being controlled by the main villain. And the villain's able to control him because he hasn't processed his survivor's guilt. (laughs) That's why this is happening. And the main character is slowly walking towards his love interest, and it's obvious that he's going to kill her. But what's crazy is if you're playing the game, you don't want him to kill that girl. That's the last thing that you want to have happen. And if you're holding the controller, whatever button you press, if you try to make him go backwards, if you try to make him go left or right, if you try to press any button, there's nothing to do with movement. It moves the player character closer and closer to the girl. Now, why is that immersive? he doesn't want to kill her either. You you as a player don't want it to happen, the character doesn't want it to happen, and now all of a sudden you've become one with the character. And so while I could watch it on screen, this moment of this person trying to fight and resist the urge to kill his love interest, that would affect me one way. It affected me so much more deeply because I was drawn into the story. And again, I think that this is just what good art does. It's what C.S. Lewis talked about frequently, frequently, when he uh, was discussing art and literature. Um, He he talked about the way in which when we read, we become, you know, one million people (laughs) in one. And I think when you play games, you step into stories in a similar fashion.
0: And and what you just uh, described to us is the concept of role-playing games. Yes. uh, And uh, talk about that a little bit. I mean, again, it's so different uh, than maybe the the very rudimentary kind of games that many of us were exposed to years ago.
1: Yeah, so the entire day of, uh, you know, role-playing games come... Uh, n- not to uh, reemerge the the quote unquote satanic panic and Dungeons and Dragons and that sort oh, of thing right. from the late seventies. Yeah, but that's where they that's where that's where a lot of the systems. I'm not talking about the themes, but the systems come from these old tabletop games, and uh, they were slowly added into video games because uh, the video games didn't have enough memory to give you a full, robust experience like you would have had playing a tabletop game at least early on. Of course, that's possible now, and today it's really moved uh, well beyond uh, its original roots. But the entire concept behind it is what we're discussing. It's You role playing you stepping into the role of a player and becoming that character and uh, playing the character well, if you will, and at the heart of that again, is immersion. Um, Again, there's this great quote from CS Lewis, he says the true reader reads every work seriously in the sense that he reads it wholeheartedly and makes himself as receptive to it as he can. His idea was like, if you're going to read about uh, medieval literature or any form of medieval literature, your goal isn't just to read the text. It's to step inside the knight's armor. It's to become one with the text. And again, I think that's what video games invite, especially role-playing games, as an example, is you're supposed to step inside of the knight's armor and experience a story. Now, of course, these stories can tell you truth. These stories can tell you falsehood. These stories can lead you in uh, bright places. They can mislead you in dark ways. But that's what I love about games is that they actually help us to wrestle with the narratives and the worldviews that surround us and to do it in a really immersive way that helps you to understand who your neighbor is and what story they're living in as well.
0: Well, my guest today on His People is Patrick Miller. He is a pastor at The Crossing and co-director of digital relationships. We're talking about his piece, The Case for Taking Video Games Seriously. And we can certainly see, Pastor Miller, that you do take video games seriously. What kind of discernment do you think Christians need to bring to video games? I mean, are are all video games fair... Fair game, so to speak. I mean, or is there a certain level of discernment where some you probably don't want to play the role that they're proposing or offering?
1: Yeah, it's a a fantastic question. And I think I think I think that you'd apply the exact same rules to playing video games as you would apply to any form of entertainment, whether it was reading a book or listening to music or watching a TV show or a movie. Or anything like that. Um, There's going to be movies that have um, explicit sexual content or explicit violence that isn't probably good for your heart. It's probably not what Jesus would have you watch or partake in. And maybe even more so when you are actively a participant in it as a video game. So I I think you need to know yourself. You need to ask, what does God want for my heart, my soul? Um, And then when you play the games itself, we need to play the games discerningly. You know, uh, when we step into the game, we can ask, is this game pointing me towards Christ? Is it calibrating my imagination and my ethics towards the kingdom? And if it's not, then what can I learn about the world and how do I need to resist it? And and again, that's the interesting thing about playing video games is sometimes it's going to help you understand your neighbor and help you understand your context in a deeper way so that you can interact with others evangelistically uh, for the glory of the kingdom.
0: Are there video game manufacturers uh, that, that specifically make video games that have either a biblical worldview component or they have an evangelistic aspect?
1: There are, there are some uh, Christian video game creators out there. None of them are with, as far as I know, uh, major studios. So these aren't big deal games that a lot of people are playing. Now, that said, I do know that there are Christian game developers. And some of my favorite games, while they aren't Christian, they do explore themes. Here's the deal. We live in God's world. And when you live in God's world, that means that there's some things, if you're living with the grain of creation, there's some things you can't resist. Sacrificial love is always beautiful. Why? Because we worship a sacrificial king. And so is it a shocker that some of the best video games, the most popular video games of all time, center on characters who show sacrificial love? Well, of course it's not. And does that point me towards Christ? Yes, it does. Does that create an opportunity for me to talk with my friend who likes that same video game? Hey, you love this character. Do you wanna know why? Because there's a part of your heart that longs for the true sacrificial king.
0: And talk about to video or virtual reality. That's actually, mm-hmm. actually become a big part of these kind of, I mean, talk about immersive.
1: Yeah. And so VR is really still a relatively new technology. Um, A lot of people who use it today get sick from using it. So uh, I'm not recommending you go out and do it. Well, so one of the reasons is that um, when you're playing on a screen, you only need your screen to show you about 60 frames per second to to make it look smooth. Like like you can't really notice the frames anymore. Um, When you have a VR headset on, you have to have 120 frames per second uh, to not feel sick. Um, And it has to be refreshed at a really high rate. Well, to do that, you have have really powerful computers with really powerful graphics cards that we just we don't we have them they're just so expensive that the average user can't possibly afford to use them but where vr is going is people who do have the money and the resources to play some of these games without getting physically ill from it and i do think we can expect because this is just how technology works in probably five to ten years that technology is going to be accessible to virtually everybody um, and most of it will probably be done on cloud computing so it won't even be done on your own personal device and when that happens we're going to live in a different world because it's not just video games that we're talking about we're talking about um, the ability to put on a set of goggles and work remotely alongside your your friend in a different state and it'll look like they're sitting in the room with you as you look at them through your VR goggles um, and so i do think that this the idea of gaming uh, being something that either people do together um, or, or or alone but it doesn't really interface with your work and your everyday life. I do think that's going to change over time. I think there's going to be a gamification of life that's going to make things look different.
0: Well, you do raise an interesting question, and that is to what extent are these video games today uh, in, in the current moment, are they played solo, if you will, or are they played with other people? Are they played with other people in person or other people online that are who knows where?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So most games today are probably our most popular games, the most widely played games are massively multiplayer games. So whether these are first-person shooters where you know people are, are doing that together um, or it's online role-playing games, a lot of them are multiplayer. And people are sometimes playing with friends. It's very easy to play with friends that you know locally, but they're also often playing with people that they've met online. And it's really cool. I, I've seen some Christians in this space use this for evangelism. There's a there's a great guy on a streaming platform called Twitch. His name's a TV Preacher Guy. Oh. <laughs> and, he, he, he goes on there. He's, he's really good at some of these games, and so that's why people watch him. But as he goes through these games, he'll often periodically stop and talk with people. And I've seen him teach people how to pray. I've seen him lead people to Christ on his stream. I've seen him answer questions that people have never gotten into a church. They just have questions about, you know, what does Christianity say about that? I've seen him address that. And so there's some really cool ways that the multiplayer aspect, even online, can be used by God to reach people who are far
0: from him. this question, I think, would largely come from parents, but at what point can these powerful aspects of video games, whether it's immersion, obviously there's the fun, the storytelling, and all of these kind of things uh, be addictive?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, again, that's one of the experiences that I think a lot of Gen X parents had was they got their kids these consoles and all of a sudden, especially their sons, you know, don't want to go hang out with friends, they don't want to go to school, they want to spend the whole weekend playing Halo or Madden or FIFA or whatever game it was at the time that they were interested in. And I I won't call that a myth. I call the other, you know, I say that video games make you violent. That's a myth that video games are childish. I think that's a myth. I don't think it's a myth that video games can be highly addictive. There's lots of studies have shown this to be the case. Now, I, I think it's something like I want to say something like 19% of video gamers are at risk for addiction. Mm. So it's not everybody, but it's a yeah. large enough proportion that, gosh, you should be thoughtful and worried about it. Yeah. And so I think it's just responsible to set normal entertainment boundaries. You know, what what would concern you if your son or your daughter was spending that much time watching football or watching Netflix? Well, set the exact same limits for their usage of video games. The other thing I think you have to be careful of uh, is um, games that have things like microtransactions. So (laughs) this is the ability to um, buy things on the video game. So you can buy something that makes your character look different or that makes some aspect of the game uh, improved. And the companies that do these microtransactions, they often give their games away for free. So the only thing that you're actually paying for is the add-ons. And uh, it's a huge, huge, huge billion dollar business. And these game developers are trying to hack your mind. I I don't have no other word for it. What they're attempting to do is put you in circumstances where you feel compelled to buy their products. And not all game developers are like that. I I typically avoid games with microtransactions. I typically avoid games that have highly addictive loops. That's one of the risks of these massively multiplayer games is that they are designed with something called a game loop. um, And the game loop can become addictive. And again, some of them, not all of them, but some of them have designed their game so that you get, again, in an addictive loop or a pattern of behavior.
0: Is is that similar to the different levels that you move up or is that, that's a different aspect?
1: Uh, usually a game loop would be uh, something. So you can use an example like... Um, Fortnite or Call of Duty or most first-person shooters, you've got a game loop. So the first part of the loop would be loading in. The second part would be you know, dropping down, grabbing equipment. The next part of the loop would usually be some sort of loop of taking out enemies, going to heal. And so they create a pattern that then when the game restarts, so once that game is over, you just restart the game. You're not on a different level. You're just playing with different players and you go through the same loop again. And a a good game with good good game feel will have these little loops that happen. I'm not saying that the loops themselves are wrong. Every game has loops but there are some games that design loops to keep you addicted. They're trying to get you trapped where you can't get yourself mentally out of it. You have to have more.
0: Well, my guest today on His People is Patrick Miller. He is a pastor at The Crossing and co-director of Digital Relationships. Well, our time has gone very quickly, uh, Pastor Miller. I'm wondering what, what, in a sense, what is a takeaway from your piece, The Case for Taking Video Games Seriously? I mean, you've... Talked about the fact that in your generation, a lot of people are involved in it. Obviously, it's, and I would love you to comment too on how it helps your ministry having an understanding, a knowledge, and I would assume you're a player as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've enjoyed playing video games my my whole life, and uh, just like anybody, all the discernment I just described—that's what I try to have in my own game playing experiences. Again, I go back to what C.S. Lewis said. He said, in reading great books, I've become a thousand men and yet remain myself. And I say the same thing about video games. In playing great games, I've become a thousand men and yet remain myself. I see games as an opportunity for me to engage my culture, understand my neighbor, um, appreciate it in a humble act of self-giving, the artistry of the creator who made this game by playing his game the way he wants it or she wants it to be played. Th- that's an act of humility. It's an act of love to try to understand the world from their eyes. And by understanding the world from their eyes, I have something to say to them when I disagree. Um, that's one thing I'd say. I think the other thing I'd want to say is just to parents, you know, if you've got a kid that's interested in video games. Um, maybe rather than just uh, laying down the hammer and trying to shut off the console, what if you played a video game with them? I know a lot of parents who have built some really fun experiences playing some games alongside their, their kids. Um, and there's some great games out there that you can play with them. Um, again, depending, I don't want to recommend because it kind of depends on their age and maturity. So I'm going to say, hey, go play this game or say, why did you tell me to play this game with my seven-year-old? I said, well, I thought they were 17. Um, but see this as an opportunity to build relationship, find an age-appropriate game that explores some themes that are going to help you have Jesus-centered conversations. This is one reason why I read stories of my daughter. We get to talk about Jesus afterwards, even though he's not in the story. Have those conversations, play those games with them.
0: Now, have you gotten much feedback on your article, the case for taking video games seriously? I mean, have you gotten any pushback, so to speak?
1: Um, you know, uh, but by and large, I think the feedback's been positive. I think that's in part because I opened it up by um, laying out some of the challenges that Gen X has said, you know, that they're childish, they're violent, and that they cause addiction. And because I take those things seriously and say, look, we, we need generational wisdom. So I need to listen to the, the, the age cohort ahead of me and learn from them. Um, I, I think that's muted a lot of the critique and i think a lot of people have learned i hope from me as a millennial who's engaged with the stuff said oh you know i never thought about the value of fun in the christian life i never thought about the value of narrative and story and understanding our world. I never thought of the value and the artistry required for immersion and the beauty uh, that's reflected of our creator and people who can create that immersion. Um, so I, I, on the whole, it's really actually been a pretty positive response, which I've been thankful for. That was the goal, was not to offend, but to win people over.
0: Well, I would like to ask you as we as we wrap up today, you are co-director of Digital relationships i don't think i've ever heard that as a if you will a title in a church for a pastor tell us what you do and where that came from
1: yeah so i think like a lot of churches during the pandemic we had to figure out how to do church online how to reach people who were um, at home and locked in and as a result of that even as we came out of the pandemic we realized that um, we were able to reach people On the internet in a different way not a better way just a different way than we could reach them face to face and so that led us to start a ministry that's really focused just on discipling and resourcing people with great blogs great podcasts great uh spiritual content that i hope here's the goal they'd spend less time you know listening to whether it's fox news or reading the new york times or wherever they're getting discipled online spend less time doing that and instead Be allow their local church to invest in them digitally. And again, that's just one component. We've got lots of people doing in-person ministry, that kind of thing, but that's our goal, just to reach people online
0: for Jesus. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Patrick Miller. He's on the pastoral staff of The Crossing Church in Columbia, Missouri, and writer of the thoughtful piece The Case for Taking Video Games Seriously. You can read it at ChristAndPopCulture.com Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Jenny Linda Clark on the remarkable lives of five Puritan women from history, like Anne Bradstreet.
1: People probably know she immigrated to New England as a newlywed with her husband and parents. She set up a house there and started a family in this difficult place, and she became the first person, male or female, to publish a book of poetry in America.
0: Mm, that's tomorrow at this same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.